Welcome to the AO Spine Research Top 10 podcast with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. In this episode, we'll be hearing about the number eight priority, socioeconomic impact. We will hear from spine surgeons Michael Failings and Andreas Dimitriadis, health economist Richard Phillips, and Shirley Widdop, a person living with cervical myelopathy. My name is Dr. Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and founder of myelopathy.org. And I'm Dr. Michelle Starkey, a scientist and director of myelopathy.org. This is AO Spine Research Top 10 with Myelopathy Matters. Welcome to the eighth episode in our special series with AO Spine, covering the top research priorities that have emerged from the AO Spine Recode DCM project. Perhaps, Ben, you could give us a brief reminder of what this episode is all about. So in a nutshell, we've been working with healthcare professionals, but also people living with DCM to identify the top 10 research priorities. That is a list of key clinical uncertainties that, if answered, could change outcomes quickly. And what specifically are the aims of prioritisation? Well, that's an important point. So AO Spine Recode DCM first identified a list of unanswered questions, 74 in total. But the aim of prioritisation, very much like in any aspect of life, is to make a short list of what is absolutely critical right now for the community. So by focusing our energy and investments into those questions, they're more likely to get answered in a shorter period of time. But of course, to get them answered, we need people to know about them. And that is the aim of this special podcast series, to showcase why these questions are priorities and perhaps how they might be answered. And today we're discussing priority number eight, socioeconomic impact, or as the full research question reads, what is the socioeconomic impact of DCM? That is the financial impact of living with DCM to the individual, their supporters and society as a whole. And to contextualise why this priority is vital to people with DCM, I spoke to Shirley Widdop, a former nurse turned advocate for people living in poverty and a person living with DCM. I started by asking her what has been the socioeconomic impact of being diagnosed with DCM. The socioeconomic impact is huge to anybody with DCM because anyone can be swept into poverty due to circumstances beyond their control. It certainly happened to me. One minute I was fine, the next minute I wasn't. And within five months, although I was working in a part-time job, I wasn't able to continue in employment. And because I've been left with residual symptoms, even though I did have surgery, I didn't get full function back. I've still been unable to work as a consequence. You were a nurse, weren't you? So I can imagine really hard to do once you're suffering with myelopathy. For me, I found that I couldn't continue in my job at the time. I used to be a nurse. I actually did try and go back to work in a less physically strenuous job, but it was the severity of the symptoms for me that made it difficult to continue. Yeah, that must have been really hard, like you say, because it sort of came out of the blue. I mean, one minute you were fine and then the next minute, you know, you're suffering with all of these constraints on on your life and your working life. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more why and how these challenges present themselves. Certainly from a socioeconomic impact, obviously, if you can't go out to work, you are reliant on sickness benefits. I'm talking from a UK perspective here. So when I attempted to secure the benefits that I was entitled to, to provide an anchor for me and my family, I was unsuccessful. I got nothing whatsoever. Why was it that you failed that process? It is beyond me to actually know the reasons why. Because the form filling is actually very difficult. You have to fill in a 40-page form usually. If you don't say the keywords that they need to know. Also, if the evidence from the GP or the consultant doesn't contain the key phrases that will entitle you to that benefit, you get zero points. 
if it's down to using certain words and phrases and needing particular bits of evidence from the medical profession that when you started the process you had no clue about, you can see that you know the odds are stacked against you. I don't actually think GPs are the, in the best place to assess disability. Certainly they do need an awareness of DCM so that they can write the correct evidence in the correct format. But again, anecdotal evidence from the support group is that the GPs aren't wording their letters appropriately, so we're not getting the help we need in terms of benefit claimants. And also, similarly with the consultants, they're not aware of how things should be worded in order for us to secure the support we need. I personally feel medical staff aren't necessarily the right people to assess disability. Certainly as a disabled student with the Open University in the UK, I was assessed by a specialised disability assessor who, although didn't know much about degenerative cervical myelopathy, was aware of the impact of, for example, pain, fatigue, risk of falls on my ability to complete my studies. So this issue of raising awareness and people not knowing what DCM is, is a worldwide problem. Based on anecdotal evidence, I'd agree with that sentiment wholeheartedly. Again, from a UK-based perspective, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation's UK Poverty Report for this year has found that 14 million people have been swept into poverty. And of those 14 million, 7 million are living in households where either they themselves have a disability or they are living with someone in the household who is disabled. And I'm sure that may well translate again internationally. This is why it's so important that we actually have the socioeconomic impacts researched because we know people are out there and they are struggling. Yeah, I mean, it's a really important point. And, you know, thank goodness it it made it into the top 10 priorities. So, Shelley, what would be your recommendations for addressing this one specifically? Well, obviously, we need someone to research the cost of early versus late intervention, for example, because a lot of people don't know that they have degenerative cervical myelopathy. A lot of the GPs don't know about it. Some of the more experienced medical staff don't know about it. And this is leading, anecdotally at least, from the um, the support group that people are having diagnoses missed or they're being misdiagnosed. I think it's important, obviously, that from a financial point of view, we have quantitative studies to try tease out that information but I think it's really important as well that we have qualitative studies regarding people's experiences when living with degenerative cervical myelopathy. If we can understand the socioeconomic impacts we can actually save money in the long run so if there is more awareness of DCM there will hopefully be a improved care pathways where people are actually getting improved access to imaging, improved access to neurologists, improved access to neurosurgeons. They will be getting diagnosed much quicker, ideally within the four to six month window that we know is um, optimum. And if they're getting diagnosed quicker, they are not left to go permanently disabled and therefore requiring extra financial assistance in the future. Being in debt as a consequence of poverty increases the risk of mental ill health if you're not already there. Um, The relentless grind and pressure in trying to make ends meet can basically destroy you as a person. It It can strain family ties. Being in poverty affects access to secure housing, nutritious food, the ability to care for yourself the quality of your life tends to be reduced because you have DCM because it is in fact incurable in most cases everything like that affects your ability to cope with having DCM and not just you yourself it also affects your family now many of our members in the support group they have family members caring for them my son who is 15 he is my young carer there are 700,000 young carers 
estimated to be in the UK. I suspect internationally it would be a similar figure in other countries in proportion to their populations. Yeah, because it has such a massive impact, like you say, not just on the person that um, is suffering those symptoms and the condition, but also their family. Yes, so it's absolutely vital that this issue is addressed. It's vital for any further research that may come on the back of this that disabled people themselves have a, a spot at the table to actually get involved with the research because a lot of the research has been done by able-bodied people who can't possibly understand what it might be like. Now, I think we've hit the nail on the head there. If you don't have people with DCM involved, then how can you possibly know what the most pertinent questions and and issues are for for people that are suffering from it? So I think, you know, the the process that has been gone through with the AO Spine RICO project, you know, has been fantastic. My main hope, and it's partly why I've been part of the whole process in deciding these research priorities and also which is why I lobbied so hard for this particular priority, priority A, to be included, is that hopefully with quicker diagnosis and treatment, we have an overall reduction in disability. Shirley's been a big part of myelopathy.org since we first started, and I know this question means an awful lot to her. And she brings a broad perspective, as comes across in her interview, both that personal experience, but also now the experience of being an advocate for a UK organisation called the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Yes, and her interview really highlights how this sudden change in financial circumstances can plunge someone into poverty and the subsequent sort of impacts on her life as well as that of her family, including the impacts on their mental health. And apart from these anecdotal experiences, these aren't really outcomes that we've measured regularly in DCM research today. Yes, and that speaks to Shirley's experience, doesn't it? She believes that medical professionals are perhaps not the best people to assess disability. And she had a much better experience with a specialist disability assessor. And on that point, why do you think she struggled to access disability benefits? To be honest, I I don't know. I mean, that whole system is a bit of an enigma to me. But I think it probably comes down again to a lack of awareness and a lack of recognition that this condition is a a life-changing Uh, condition which needs that support and I think if we compare it to other diseases which have a better profile and possibly benefit um, from that recognition such as multiple sclerosis this does represent perhaps a healthcare inequality within our healthcare system. And this is something I discussed with our next guest Andreas Dimitriadis who is a spinal surgeon and consultant neurosurgeon at Edinburgh University Hospital. Andreas recently placed a spotlight on the potential healthcare inequalities within spinal surgery. So I started by asking him his perspective on health inequalities in DCM. If we take things from an earlier stage, I think we have to acknowledge that disparities or inequalities exist in all areas of healthcare, and that includes surgical care. Uh, Of course, within surgical populations, there are several populations that suffer from disproportionately worse uh, access to care and, of course, worse outcomes in surgery. So the challenge becomes to understand as well as address the inequalities that exist along the surgical care pathway. The disparities are several. Um, For example, racial or ethnic disparities are only one type of inequality, and these have been demonstrated across many surgical disciplines. For example, we know that African-American patients have worse outcomes with higher mortality, longer length of stay, more readmissions, and this is observed in diverse health disciplines, from cardiac to colorectal surgery. So the question is, what are, what are the factors that would reduce these inequities? And this exposes a major gap in our understanding of, of surgical disparities and our ability to reduce them, which basically means we need to do more research to identify them. And the research has to be high quality, has to be innovative. It needs to mitigate the inequities 
needs to have the aim of optimizing the outcomes for our patients. If I were to expand a little bit, research can involve both quantitative and qualitative research methods. Quantitative can be using clinical registries, working with big data, and qualitative can be using interviews or focus groups, etc. So Andreas, you recently wrote a letter to the editor of Spine, specifically on this topic. And within that letter, which I was just reading, you mentioned specific socioeconomic impacts on people with DCM and their surgery and and diagnosis. So I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about, about those specifics in terms of DCM. The letter was highlighting some good work that was published in the journal called Spine by a group of American colleagues, uh, Razuli et al., which, upon reading it, it strengthened my view that insurance status can influence patient outcomes. And that means, it by extension, that the socioeconomic status can influence patient outcomes. And people might think, oh, that the healthcare in the U.S. is different to European and, of course, to the U.K., state-funded system, but socioeconomic status does exist in all healthcare systems. And essentially, these colleagues have shown that patients who presented later with advanced degenerative cervical disease did cost overall more to the system. And even though they had similar treatment at whatever time point they had it, they ended up having more visits after their operation to the accident and emergency department, and they needed more input from their family physician, which, you know, it raises a lot of questions. Yeah, and I think in part of that letter, you said that all of these things lead to an overall higher cost to the healthcare system. But sort of reading through it, you think, well, actually, it's bad for everyone, isn't it? I mean, the patient ends up, you know, with a worse outcome, which means that they're either not able to go back to work or, you know, they have to change their job or affects their home life in that way. So I was thinking that actually these inequalities have huge ramifications on the person's life and, and society in general. So it is, it is such a big issue and really good that it got raised as part of the top 10. I agree. I'm glad it has been raised as one of the top 10 from the initiative that has been led through the team in the AO. As surgeons, we are always thinking about how to improve our technique, how to design new equipment. But these are much bigger factors that will probably have much more important influence on our patients' outcomes. You're speaking to a group of surgeons about a condition that requires technical expertise, and there's a few different ways of of operating. These ways include expensive kits and instrumentation. They include risky procedures. They include uh, some exciting toys that we as surgeons always like. And a lot of the debate can often center around, am I going to do this procedure or the other? Am I going to go and operate from the front of the neck or the back of the neck or the side of the neck? Am I going to use this kit or the other? And therefore, it's easy to get involved in those discussions because they are the everyday type of considerations we we make in our practice. But then when when we take a step back and look at the disease burden as a whole, where it starts and where it's easy to be identified and and where it's not, uh, it becomes a lot more complicated. Why do you think these health inequalities exist? Again, this is a multifactorial or multi-layered discussion and I don't have the answer to that but I have some starting points. We already mentioned that there are demonstrated racial or ethnic disparities as regards health. Another term that we hear from health economists is the term social determinants of health which basically are conditions in the environment where people are born, where they live, where they work, where they play, where they age And these social determinants seem to affect outcomes and risks with respect to their baseline health, their function, and their quality of life. So this is something that ought to be explored. Another key concept is what some health economists call the neighborhood disadvantage. 
And this is common among socially or socioeconomically marginalized groups of people, such as, again, racial or ethnic minorities, which can be disproportionately affected by chronic conditions like diabetes and heart disease, but also acute situations, as we saw recently in the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Degenerative cervical myelopathy is one chronic condition where, again, this needs to be explored. And when I first heard of the neighborhood disadvantage term, I immediately thought of postcode lottery, which may be a different way of seeing similar things, but it extends not only to the health of the individuals in a particular area, but also to the healthcare resources available and invested in such areas. I'm sure some of my colleagues will agree that uh, we all recognize such geographical pockets from where patients present with more adverse symptoms, such as with cervical myelopathy, than would have been the case somewhere else. And this places the patient at a disadvantage because the patient can start from a lower baseline, aiming at a lower desirable outcome too. And and this brings me to my final point on this is that is postcode lottery luck or is it connected to health literacy? which again is a factor contributing to disparities. And health literacy is the ability to obtain, to read, to understand, and to use healthcare information to make appropriate health decisions and be able to follow instructions for treatment. And and I guess it's, it's our duty as clinicians to make sure our information is delivered at the level of complexity that is totally understood by our patients. What should we be doing to address these inequalities? I would favor a multidisciplinary and multi-layered approach because it is a multi-layered problem. I think we need to address patient factors, we need to address provider factors, and we also need to address factors of the system within which people are, are working. Yeah, because in a way, by the time the patient is presenting to you as a spine surgeon, it's too late, isn't it? You know, they've already been affected by these various factors presented to you potentially too late. And so the the sort of wheels are already in motion, aren't they, for their worse outcome and future higher costs to the healthcare system. So in a way, these interventions need to be happening a much earlier phase, don't they, before the person's coming into into the healthcare system? And how do you do that? I, I totally agree. I, I mean, in some ways, when I first heard of the priority being recognized in the top 10, I got the impression that it was referring to the socioeconomic impact after the diagnosis, after the treatment. In other words, people who already have the disability and will therefore need a complex level of care afterwards. But I think what you and I have been discussing the last few minutes is that the answers may lie beforehand. I agree. We don't want to be always running after the problems. We need to identify them and hopefully try to address them so that patients will show up at an earlier stage with better chances of better recovery and hopefully fewer long-term costs. Why do you think answering these questions are particularly relevant to the spinal surgery community? Good question. I mean, these these factors can affect someone's health in any medical or surgical discipline. But like with any specialty, we as spinal surgeons wish to have uh, the best possible outcomes for our patients. Therefore, identifying any disparities will allow measures hopefully to be taken to alleviate inequalities and to countermeasure against lower expected outcomes. This almost certainly cannot be a single-pronged approach. You know, some of these measures, and probably the most important ones, will be non-surgical. We all know prevention is better than cure with degenerative cervical myelopathy. Even though there is no cure, there is treatment, but the earlier we identify it uh, and control it, the better it is for the patient. This starts a lot earlier than when I see my patients. This process has started sometimes years and years in advance. So in some ways, we need to raise awareness. We need to address barriers. And therefore, we need to optimize the diagnosis and therefore the treatment. 
if one arrives at much advanced stage of degenerative cervical myelopathy, the surgical solution, in inverted commas, might be more complicated or more complex without necessarily being as efficient as a simpler solution that would have been the answer at a previous earlier stage of presentation. So the million-dollar question now, what is your personal recommendation for answering this priority? I would try and bring together a team of colleagues as well as patients. You know, we, we need the input from patients to identify how this affects the, their quality of life because what we think is important might change once we speak to focus groups and interview patients and, and, and collect such qualitative research data. In the quantitative side of things, we can address this by analyzing data from registries and getting information from as many colleagues as possible, bringing data together, collaboration across different countries will provide the volume of data to enable meaningful analysis. Getting advice from uh, people who have parallel interests, such as uh, health economists, uh, statisticians, and other allied health specialties. For example, physiotherapy is quite important in the post-operative care of myelopathy. It is relevant in the socioeconomic environment because some people will have a complex operation but then receive no physiotherapy for several weeks or months. And therefore, that's not as good as someone who has a very nicely laid out patient pathway. So we need to address this in many different angles. And you just wonder how that fits within an already overly stressed system where, you know, there's little money, not enough time to follow up with everyone. Any patient who has a a disadvantaged pathway will have problems in the long run. For example, let's say I have an operation after which I can't get timely advice for pain control. And because I can't get timely advice for addressing this issue, I end up going to the emergency room instead of going to my own doctor. And then because I'm in pain, I'm not even attending the few physio appointments. And because I'm not attending, I am then discharged. And then when I'm a bit better, I need to be re-referred, and there's a long waiting list. And before you know it, it's already six months down the line. These are real real patients, real problems. I'm not making it up. And this is exactly what was described in that paper by Razuli and others, in that patients who had, shall we say, poorer insurance status did end up going more to the emergency room. And the picture I described becomes an important factor. And it just becomes self-perpetuating, doesn't it? That, you know, these these problems lead to more problems and, and worse and worse outcome. So it seems that in each of the cases, it's down to early diagnosis. So how do we make sure that that happens? We... As specialists, the secondary or tertiary level need to do as much as we can to increase awareness and to decrease any neurophobia, not only amongst doctors, but hopefully somehow amongst patients as well. We need to identify the barriers and then address them. Absolutely. And as you know, I work with the charity and and that's the thing we talk about all the time, raising awareness. And I think that's a real issue for the field, the biggest issue, actually. Hence why it came out as, <laughs> as the top priority during this process. So if one contrasts Andreas's perspectives to Shirley, I think from Shirley, we really got that financial impact of DCM and and the consequences that follow. But Andreas is also showing a different side. He's highlighting how that personal financial circumstance can influence how you access care and potentially your outcomes. Yes, that's right. And he refers to the social determinants of health, such as racial, ethnic and neighbourhood inequalities that in fact further widen this gap. So how do we explore these? 
Well, interestingly, both Andreas and Shirley sort of come to the same conclusion on this, and I sort of agree with them. There is an element of quantitative research, but also a large amount of qualitative research that needs to come, really getting the perspectives of people affected. And do you think that this will resonate with healthcare professionals? I think as a question, it really should. And Andreas shows us a side that may well connect better with professionals, perhaps even healthcare providers, because he's really highlighted that in that study he, he, he describes in North America, you know, lower socioeconomic status led to delayed treatment, more hospital admissions. And so one would conclude really worse outcomes and at greater cost. And that is something society as a whole needs to respond to. But do you think we really have the right information to make this argument? Don't you think that's perhaps why this is a research priority? I think that's absolutely spot on. We don't really have the full picture. And we really need this to drive policy and investment into these and all of DCM's problems. I really like that turn of phrase that Ellen Sarowitz used in episode five, you know, hit them in the pocket. I think that's what we need in DCM. We need that evidence to demonstrate the financial need. So how do we get to the bottom of this? Well, these are questions I put to our next two guests, Dr. Michael Failings, Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Toronto, but also Dr. Richard Phillips, a former anaesthetist turned health economist. But I started by asking Dr. Michael Failings about his perspectives on the cost effectiveness of surgery. Our group, based on uh, prospective studies, which were sponsored by the uh, AO Spine Group, uh, undertook a cost-effectiveness analysis of surgery for DCM, and we found that uh, surgery is highly cost-effective and that the costs dramatically enhance quality-adjusted life years falls well below uh, the accepted benchmarks, which would uh, make uh, surgical treatment for DCM uh, highly cost-effective. How do you think that translates into a, a socioeconomic impact? Because that's a little bit uncharted at the moment. My sense is that the socioeconomic impact of degenerative cervical myelopathy is substantial. And you've alluded to the fact that we lack data, and we do. We can infer data from traumatic spinal cord injury and DCM is a form of non-traumatic spinal cord injury. If you look at the costs of care of an individual with an incomplete cervical spinal cord injury who is middle-aged, and this approximates the typical individual with DCM, the costs um, in Canadian dollars, which is applicable to the UK and other countries, can result in over a million dollars per patient in terms of direct health care costs and indirect costs, for example, a loss of employment and um, medical costs that are associated with this. So the costs are very substantial. So Dr. Failings has summarized the evidence that we have today in DCM and alluded to that potential significant cost of DCM to society. But how do we establish that cost? Well, this is a question I put to Dr. Richard Phillips, health economist at the Goffin Consultancy in the United Kingdom. But I first asked him to give us an introduction to this area of science and what do we mean by health economics? Essentially, it's the examination of all the costs and benefits associated with a treatment, be it surgery, a drug or whatever, in order to understand its value. Let's take it from the bottom up. It's clearly not possible to follow patients through their individual journeys because they are so different. Every person is different. We all know this. They may be retired, not retired. They may be in work, out of work, living in the north, living in the south. Doesn't matter. So we have to basically average things. We have to look at the bigger picture. So we have to create a model. You know, it's an algorithm. And there you have to find evidence to support this. And that comes from perhaps clinical trials, how efficacious a particular treatment is. You might look at uh, GP records or hospital records, how many operations are done, how long people stay in hospital. All these little parameters can feed into this overall model. Health economics is really an establishment of the, the, the cost involved in a particular treatment and demonstrating an argument one way or the other for or against that from a cost perspective? It's, it's more than that. It's the cost and benefit. You've got to balance the two sides of the equation. I understand, Richard, that you've been using some of these approaches uh, in, in myelopathy for the first time, working with myelopathy.org. 
people really aren't really focusing on DCM. It's not perceived to be as important, for example, I don't know, as diabetes or heart disease or cancer care. One needs to basically fly the flag, as it were, for the condition. When it comes to the sort of spending and budgeting, should more be spent in this area or would it be better spent elsewhere? And ultimately, is there a group of patients who, if we threw some more money at it, could potentially have better outcomes? What I was trying to get a handle on was how to create a model. So the first part of that, of course, is how many people have it. And one of the problems I had when I looked at the literature is that, quite frankly, no one really has a good feel for it. If you don't know how many you've got, how do you know how much you're spending? Good thing about the NHS is that there are certain data available in terms of hospital episode statistics. What they are is a list, essentially, and they're easily available from NHS Direct. Just look up hospital episodes and you can see how many patients are admitted for different conditions across the UK year by year. Inside that data, you have male and female, how long they stay, average age, all very, very important information for feeding into this model. And overall, the incidence appears to be about 7.4 per 100,000 of the total population of the UK. We also found some other interesting stuff, like, you know, there's a slight preponderance of males to females, about 57 to 43%, which is in line with other studies. And the average age of patients presenting is around 62 years. Obviously, you've had an opportunity now to look at the data and try and pull the data together, which we have in myelopathy. And I think you've really highlighted that there are a number of different gaps in terms of how confident we can be that the information going into that model is robust. You know, for example, you know, we rely on ICD coding for detection of incidents of course, instance is only based on people who are diagnosed, and that doesn't cater for the non-diagnosed population in myelopathy. And also in terms of the, the, the patient journey and what happens, again, you're reliant on the information that we have, and that is very focused on people who have surgery with less information on people who do not have surgery, or indeed longer down the line, you know, many, many years after that treatment. So the findings that you have so far are really based on, on the available data, and, and, and what did they sort of show you? Well, it has to always highlight the limitations. I mean, as, as you rightly have just then, it's big data. And, and so <laughs> big data, as I always say to anyone who asks me, is messy data. So it's a question of trying to pick out what are the salient points. O- overall, a patient has got sufficient symptoms that they are potentially not working as much, even stopping work because they're unable to do it. So you use that figure in addition to the average age to get an overall estimate of when patients might have stopped working completely. Now, why is that important? Well, several reasons. From the patient point of view, clearly the quality of life is pretty rubbish. They're unable to work and function in society as they may have done prior to that. They're no longer productive. They now start potentially receiving disability benefits, and so on, and so on, and so on. Now, when you throw into the mix how much they might have earned in that period of time, you know, from from when they actually had to stop work through to when they would potentially retire, say, at 65, you're looking at a potential lost income, on average, of around £350,000, which is a huge amount of money. In return... If you think about, well, they're not working, so they are potentially receiving unemployment benefit, and in addition to that, some disability benefit, they're going to be receiving approximately £140,000. So there's a £200,000 lost income, which is significant, which is a big loss. So not only have you got the DCM, not only have you had to go through surgery and so on, which may or may not improve symptoms, you then have to suffer the indignity of losing your income. And uh, there's evidence also, in addition to that, that the quality of life is associated with your self-esteem and so on. So overall, there's a huge individual loss through having this condition. Now, if you look at productivity losses, 
productivity loss per year of the 4,000 or so patients who come through the system is around 35 million a year. And you add that over, over a period of time, and then it's, it's a pretty big number. On average, the cost of a patient receiving treatment for DCM is around £9,200 in today's money. Now, that's supposed to include visits, operations, tests, anything happening inside the hospital. Now, if you multiply that by the number of treatments provided from the hospital statistics, you're looking at a direct cost of around £39 million per year. So if one focuses just on the UK, the overall cost to society comes to around, um, in, in today's money, around £74 million. So I suppose, obviously, we need to be clear that this is based largely on UK data and UK circumstances. But those figures need to be extrapolated across globally to really understand that this is a significant impact both to the individual, to society, uh, and something that should be addressed. Absolutely. You know, I, I think it's not unreasonable to assume that the proportions are likely to be pretty similar everywhere. I mean, I'm not aware of any geographical difference in, in incidence or prevalence of DCM. It's generally assumed to be much the same in developed economies. We've acknowledged that there are some some limitations in the data that's been used to compile these numbers to date. And that's really based on on the weaknesses and, and gaps that we have in our, our current knowledge. In terms of going forward and, and answering this question, perhaps with a, an additional level of detail, what would be the ideal data set, the di- ideal data points that, that someone like yourself would have hold of in order to be able to be much more confident and comprehensive in, 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 in what they bring together? For this, the ideal thing is that one obviously needs numbers of patients. Now, obviously, we have numbers of patients who receive operations and so on, but we don't really have any idea, quite frankly, of how many people are presenting with milder symptoms in GP land. People who have not got to the stage of referral to the hospital sector. We have no feel for that at all. As I said before, big data is messy data. And you've got all sorts of things. There may be reasons why a patient turns up at a GP. You know, oh, I've got a headache, doc, but unfortunately I've also got numb fingers. You know, it might not be the primary reason. We identified the numbers of patients coming through according to those ICD-10 codes. Now, when I started looking at the hospital statistics, the problem with ICD codes, these are primary diagnostic codes. Now, this patient may also have had heart disease or diabetes or all these other comorbidities, but you're not including that in the calculations. We're simply looking at the primary diagnosis, which is obviously DCM. And so you have all potential comorbidities messing things up. And uh, there has been a survey done by yourself, Ben, which has asked a series of questions of patients online. But unfortunately, when you have a survey, particularly put out by something like myelopathy.org, you're going to get people who are interested in myelopathy.org. So you're getting a self-selected group. I think we would have to look at something like that in a more structured way, perhaps being more careful with some of the questions, try and avoid this selection bias. The ideal would be, well, how many people have symptoms which may not be severe enough to actually warrant treatment at this point, how long that goes on for, what is actually happening to them, where they are in their employment, are they unable to work full-time, so they take part-time work or even stop work altogether. Also, personal income. So in sort of summarising those sort of points, so what you you need to have is you need to have as comprehensive a, a capture of the disease in all of its forms, even if it's just a snapshot by region or in an area that can be at least extrapolated. And then you need to have longitudinal capture points that really drive into, you know, what is the the lost personal income, the change in personal circumstances professionally, and then use those quality of life tools perhaps with their health economic conversions to be able to to identify the cost and impact. That's absolutely right. What happens over time? There's no evidence, for example, as far as I can see in the literature, how does DCM decline? Is there a figure I can use to say, okay, 
here's a group of patients. I can say on average five years time, X percentage will have had the, the symptoms will have got worse and worse to the extent they need operation. Having had the operation, is there any longitudinal data which tells me how they manage in the future? Are they now able to go back to work, for example? Are they getting worse? Is their quality of life any different? We have no evidence. Having said that, what you can do is say, look, here is the model, you know, warts and all, and you state where there are limitations, all the uncertainties, and you can examine those uncertainties in a sensitivity analysis and say, well, look, if we can reduce the time to diagnosis, will this have any effect on the model? Can we find some real drivers in there which will actually affect the overall outcome? It can sound a bit hard, but unfortunately, the decisions to offer treatment to to back them with research investment does boil down to, to some degree, uh, an economic argument. It does, ultimately. I mean, all through the line, you're looking for value for money. As much as we'd love to be able to do it, you can't treat everybody. There is a finite amount of money in the pot. And I think that returns us really to really why this question is a priority, because Unless you have this information available, then you cannot evaluate whether or not something's going to make a difference. So you have to make the best of what you have. And it really is important that you try and use what you have as effectively as possible. And in our case, okay, we're casting around a little bit to find appropriate data, but we do have some actual fairly reasonable data. Um, It could be better. But it is what it is, and we can use that to basically fly the flag, as, as, as the way I see it. And with respect to DCM, one of the big issues that we had was really, who are these people? You know, what are the ICD codes associated with these people? What are the, the treatment codes associated with, with these people? And so on. Yeah, and what, of course, happens to people who, who don't have treatment or perhaps don't end up with, with specialist services? Yeah. And of course, I think that links nicely because many of those questions are in fact covered in, in other priorities, indeed other objectives. Recode itself hopes to establish a new ICD code for, for this disease. And of course, there are many questions about improving diagnosis and, and looking at the natural history, which all may feed into this model in the future. So from the interview, Ben, it sounds like Richard had quite a difficult time building a cost estimate for DCM. He he certainly did. And just for a bit of more background, I should highlight this is a report commissioned by myelopoly.org, which will be available online towards the end of this year. But absolutely, it was quite difficult to put together. Richard had to bring together all sorts of different data. But I think one of the fundamental things he struggled with is how he identified cases of DCM in these big population databases. DCM doesn't have a specific reference code at the moment. So, you know, understanding the epidemiology, the economic impact always starts with finding the cases. And and he was struggling to do that. So is that what he refers to as this ICD code? Correct. Yes. ICD stands for International Classification of Disease. And it's a big library of codes produced by the World Health Organization. And it's really used to categorize disease, both to allow it to be tracked for research, but also to support um, financial uh, remuneration of, of healthcare. And we don't have anything like that for DCM at the moment. And that creates some confusion and some difficulty here. But for me, really, I mean, the take home was these staggering numbers. So the average individual will face lost earnings of almost £500,000. It's amazing. And the annual cost to society is approximately £75 million based on his calculations. And of course, that's based on, on the UK. But I actually think that these numbers will be a significant underestimate because they're built upon those people getting a diagnosis of DCM today. And we do estimate that the majority of people never do get a diagnosis. And further, these calculations are unable at this moment in time to include the long-term treatment costs that may follow, you know, the management of pain, the management of, of residual disability. And all of this information is really needed to try and get that overall number, that cost to society, really to focus attention and demonstrate that this is a public health priority. 
And that's really the beginning of why this is such um, an important research priority. So the models are not yet very advanced and the data is messy, but we can work with what we've got and bring in new data by addressing some of the top 10 priorities. So for example, priority number three, better diagnostic pathways, so people reach their diagnosis earlier. Priority seven, novel therapies to improve this cost benefit of new treatments. Priorities four and nine, refining the assessment so that that happens quicker. Priority six, looking at rehab so that patients get back to work sooner. Priority 10, individualizing surgery. So this is potentially more successful and people are having better outcomes. And of course, priority number one, raising awareness so that scientists can bring together the studies under one term, DCM, so that data will be much easier to collate across the different studies, more comparable, robust, reliable, etc. And I think it goes both ways. You know, we need to answer this priority to drive the investment to answer the other research priorities. But answering those other research priorities will also give us much better data and understanding that we can calculate the accurate socioeconomic impact. Thanks very much to Shirley Widdop, Andreas Dimitriadis, Michael Failings and Richard Phillips for joining us. This podcast was researched by Elizabeth Roberts and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV. There's lots more information to be found about AOSpine Recode DCM on the project website, aospine.org forward slash recode. We'd love to hear your perspectives on these research priorities, so drop us an email, info at myelopathy.org. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week for the next item, that is the number nine priority, imaging and neurophysiology. Don't miss it. And to make sure you don't miss it, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app? Until then... Goodbye.